Yeah, but I really can't contain my excitement for this root RPG much longer, if I'm going to be real, guys. I've become, frankly, obsessed. Yeah. Like, pouring over these these dense tomes. You know, being good at the board game, sure, it's rewarding. But don't we all just want more root, you know? <laughs> like, I'm down for more spinoff games. Root the roll and write, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Root and right? The root and right. Roll and root. Roll and root is maybe. Roll and root is probably the best. More accurate, but root and right is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like if you want to go off roading with all the like root lore stored up in your brain, root RPG. That's where it's at. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It feels like there could be sub games. Like the Otters, the Riverfolk Company could have their own game about like buying and selling goods and services. Right. Like Mercado Day Riverfolk. Yeah, there right. we go. You know, <laughs> yeah, just a Euro game of trying to maximize your economy. Yeah, or like my first route, you know, like a kid's version <laughs> with simplified mechanics. Yeah, it's like you're you're designing a beautiful garden and then it gets burned down by <laughs> the opposing player. Does the does the my little games do the 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 first version games do they have violence in them still because there's like scythe is the one you're referring to <laughs> yeah right? there is my little scythe no it's pie fights in my little scythe <laughs> oh the mechs don't just walk up and hug each other there are no mechs there's chibi minis that are animal themed okay this it's, is barely scythe at this point it's honestly the only version of scythe I have played and want to play. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah i haven't oh, played scythe wow. yet i mean i would play normal scythe but i feel like i got it with my little scythe <laughs> i feel like i got it pie fights collecting apples i know how it works yeah mm-hmm. you do to get the authentic experience for sure <laughs> uh i love when alt history just gets like toddlerified <laughs> it's really funny well then you guys are gonna love root pretty this week okay all right very nice very nice yeah and we got everyone got all our listeners got a little sample of root pretty in the last episode thank you very much jake yeah you're welcome i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it it was a blast to lose to him uh no kyle won (laughs) i was talking about kyle oh okay i don't reference garrick (laughs) you're welcome jake yeah it was it was super fun um i i feel like we're putting in a pretty good effort to expand the uh gamification of the world of root the wonderful wide world of root yeah you're right we've got the trivia game handled yeah yeah there you go you have to start yeah you're gonna have to publish it yeah (laughs) yeah i'm sure jeopardy's gonna love that (laughs) you're not more concerned about leader games no no they're really chill jeopardy's gonna care you think jeopardy's gonna freak out about it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, Mayim Bialik is going to show up to my house. <laughs> oh, no. Garrick at, yeah. leader, at Patrick's house. <laughs> yeah, <you mean>? that's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we, we don't have um, a guest of the caliber of Garrick this week, but... You're stuck with us. We do have... <laughs> I was going to say, we're going to introduce someone a little less. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have some... Root news (laughs) that involves Garrick, and this is going to be the moment where I do a very fast uh, galloping speed tournament (laughs) recap. So we're not interviewing Garrick, but this is very Garrick related. So um, all the Garrick fans out there, put on your hats because it's time (laughs) to talk about the winter tournament. I love the idea of Garrick hats just being like his really uh, high and tight haircut. You know, everyone just like wears his haircut as a hat (laughs) and the headphones. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's really cute. 
Um, okay, we have literally two weekends worth of uh, uh, root uh, tournament play to get through here. So let's do it fast. Starting with game seven on the mountain map. Mountain map becoming more and more popular, I'm noticing here. Uh, it was all about winter and autumn for the first round. Round two, people are going nuts. <laughs> I think they want to see that lost city and what it can I do. I feel like right? everyone is ready to roll the dice. And ready to harness the power of the Lost City. Again, I think we should do a whole episode on Lost City because the I've been trying to keep track of all the different mechanics that it impacts and it creates kind of like messiness in. And it's very hard to list them all. Uh, there's just too many. Anyway, Mountain Map has become, I think, the most interesting tournament setting so far. So let's let's dive yeah. in. Game seven on the mountain map. Uh, taking the crown was our good friend Squidmark oh, with nice the Marquise de Cat. Uh, not an easy task um, at all, but managed to snatch it away from luminaries such as PJ Darker and Bot Bot. Whoa. Uh, and yeah, really, really nice game there. And congrats game. to Squidmark moving on to the next round. Unfortunately, I think the other players in that uh, game. That was their second elimination, so they are out. So, Squidmark, we'll see you in round three. Game eight uh, had a bit of a, like, wild finish, and it was pretty close. It was the Eerie, like, almost had it, maybe should have had it with a little more of uh, kind of efficient play earlier on, but uh, it is what it is, and Over the Mora was was able to close out a really strong game, and there was... There was some controversy at the end of game eight. Let's just put it that way. There was a <laughs> player had to step away. They left their hand on the table and then it was sort of picked through for a, for a price of failure. And yeah, there, there was a lot going on there. There was some wild stuff. Okay. Wait, uh, that sounds that sounds intense. I mean, it was intense, but then over the morrow as the duchy did still win the game on the next turn. So, it <laughs> you know, like it worked out in the end. But OK, there was trepidation. You guys, there's some trepidation. OK, OK. Whoa. But I will say that the game was well played overall and uh, is worth checking out. There's a couple of very interesting kind of strategic turning points in that one. Okay. Game nine on the autumn map uh, featured a pretty unusual situation. Player Omega Knight, about three quarters of the way through the game, had had like a power outage. Some kind of crazy thing happened. I I think I saw this. Disconnected from the game, was not able to rejoin. And so the only way to continue playing the game... Uh, was to do it through Lily, uh, Lily's account, and, and so under her name. So if you if you kind of like sc- scrub through the video towards the end, you'll see that Omega Knight actually transforms into Lily G towards the end. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, it was a really fun game. Uh, uh, like I said, it happened on the Autumn map, and uh, Omega Knight as the Eerie Dynasties did actually manage to pull it out. And it'll be a <laughs> Just goes to show you, you can't stop Lily from winning. <laughs> even when she's right. not even in the tournament lily's winning that's right mvp <laughs> of that game is definitely lily g uh so it's it's really also a game worth checking out some pretty interesting stuff going down there too um okay game 10 we are back on the mountain map this is the second mountain map we've seen on the weekend and uh player love shard ended up taking this one with the eerie dynasties who, along with Granitap, will be advancing to round three. So congrats to those players. If memory serves me right, Love Shard won their first game too. Is that right? I think so, yeah. So Love Shard actually going in on a perfect score right now. Uh, got, a, got a bit of a halo. Ready to uh, that halo's take an about, L and keep rolling. That halo is about to go onto their back and turn into a target. 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. Look out, Love Shard. <laughs> All right. Game 11, we had uh, a lake map. And uh, actually, I was on this game. I cast this game with Garrick. This was super fun uh, to watch. I actually highly recommend, not, not just for self-serving reasons, but because this game had so many twists and turns that Garrick could barely keep it together. Uh, we, we had so much fun <laughs> casting this game. Uh, features one of the more um, infamous backstabs that I've ever seen in a root game. Uh, and featured just some of my favorite root players. For instance, uh, A.A.R.O.N., C. Coyote, both in that game. Whoa. But the winner at the end was Decoy as the Tinker. Oh, wait. This is the game where, like, cats set up a really strong dominance play, Yeah, right? there was a cluster of mouse clearings that then A.A.R.O.N. went for a dominance victory. I did want to shout out A.A.R.O.N. because... It takes a certain bravery mm-hmm. to attempt a dominance play in tournament uh, play when when your tournament life is on the line to go for that. And I think objectively, it was probably the right call. He had such a good position for it. He was cats. He had all the clearings. Yeah, I think he had all four of the clearings. Yeah, all four. And he managed to do a good job of kind of throwing everyone off the scent until it was happening. Like everyone mm-hmm. was kind of vaguely aware that it was a threat. But they did not know until it happened that it was going to happen. And he just wow. hit 10 points on the nose and went for it. He hit the early dominance timing window that we had mentioned. Yeah, he did it right as soon as was possible. Yeah. No time wasted. It was a perfectly efficient run at a dominance victory that literally no one else had, like, rated. We had kind of talked about it in the chat. Maybe it got mentioned during the game, but no one seriously considered it until it was happening. And everyone yeah. realized as soon as he triggered it. <laughs> how difficult it was going to be to stop it. I can't remember if it was in chat or in the actual Discord conversation of the players, but I just remember when it occurred, them going like, well, wait, is this over? Because <laughs> like, it was just so, it seemed so daunting. He had so many soldiers or so many warriors in those clearings already. It, it's really, really worth watching, going to check it out, just because yeah. everyone is on the edge of their seat for, I think, like an hour straight. Like, everyone's convinced the game is about to end any second. Like, wow. yeah, the people are playing game. out of their minds, Root. It is <laughs> so good. All right, that's game 11. Um, and so we actually had three people moving on from that game. We had uh, Decoy, obviously, who won that game as the, the Tinker, kind of a come-from-behind story there. Uh, Coyote, who won in round one. And mm-hmm. Trenzalore, who also won in round one, will be yeah. advancing as well. So we had three people advancing out of that game. And... Uh, Man, it's just such a shame that A.A. Ron couldn't pull that that victory out because it was really, really a, a valiant play and one of the more promising dominance attempts that I've seen. Yeah, a hero of the time, and we're starting the support group. I'm sure I'm going to join you shortly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, the the loser support group is growing strong, uh, and A.A. Yeah, Ron every is day. a hero amongst them. All right. Game 12 <laughs> happened on the winter map. We had uh, Luke as the warlord of taking the crown. Luke is a veteran root player and has gone deep in many tournaments. I think, has Luke won a tournament? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, but he's been a finalist before for sure. Also won his round one game. He won his round one game. So we will be advancing again with a halo. Congrats to Luke. We have another uh, person advancing from that game, and that's Junior Bacon, who actually played an incredible game as the scoundrel. And, I mean, if you look back at the tape, like, maybe Junior Bacon could have won that game a round earlier. Uh, but it went all the way back around to Luke, and he was able to close it out. But there's there's a couple of little kind of diverging paths that 
uh, Junior Bacon took as the Vagabond that maybe with an extra aid here, an extra quest there, could have put him over the finish line a little bit earlier. Uh, but really, really good game. Also want to shout out Silent Echo for having an awesome Lizards game. Uh, almost a Lizards win. <laughs> this wow. game was awesome. I, I call it a photo finish. Like, you really, it was very hard to tell who was going to mm. succeed in this game. Uh, but shouts to Junior Bacon and Luke. Good luck in your next round of play. Game 13 on Autumn Map. This one I also had underlined. It was just like so close. Everyone just <laughs> in a Peloton at around like 27 points. Everyone in a Peloton? Yeah, I'm, I need Peloton defined for my 2022 brain. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. Like in a bike race, in a uh, cycling race, it's like the big group of cyclists is called a Peloton. You know how there's like. Well, I didn't know this. I thought front. this was the company that makes the amazing stationary bike. Yeah, right, yeah. Because... I mean, well, they, that's where they got the name from, right? But the word comes from the grouping of cyclists at the end of a race. Well, it makes sense, yeah. too, because you're going to be grouped up if all the bikes are stationary. <laughs> yeah. You're really yeah, not yeah. going to really leave the, the starting line. <laughs> a constant peloton. That's right. All right, fun fact. Yeah, being part of a group, a group of cyclists. It's like a flock. It's a collective noun for cyclists, I think. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. specifically in the race race context. Anyway, everyone is in, grouped up together right around 30 victory points. And, oh boy, this was, there was some uh, really excellent play that just the quality makes it heartbreaking. I, there's no other way to put it than that. Like, good players going home makes me sad. But mm-hmm. that is the cruel world of uh, root tournament play. So congrats to Omnix for a win as the Warlord on the Autumn map. Really, really good game. Shouts to Nev, though, for, for having an excellent game as well. Uh, Unselfish Moles game really, really helped to uh, make it close. So good game. All right, game 14. We are back on the mountain map. Again, it keeps popping up. I love seeing games in the mountain map. So exciting. Jake, this was your game. This is game 14. Oh, and boy. Uh, I actually want to throw it this over to game. you. I want to get the inside scoop about how this yeah. game happened. This game, I want to start off by saying that uh, when I got into the chat ahead of the game, I was talking with the other players for a few minutes, and we were all sharing our trepidation about the game. And I was like, wait, why are we all nervous? We all are like enjoying this experience. We all enjoy the game. We're eager to do it. Why are we nervous? And uh a couple of them both said, and I think I, I hold this opinion too, is like when you mess up and other people are watching in what seems like a high stakes environment, like the pressure just is so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 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 less than a hundred people. There this matters in no special way. <laughs> like this there's no pressure, right? The pressure's all what we put on ourselves. But I totally hear that and kind of felt it too. And let me tell you when the pressure's the heart like the, at its highest is when you haven't played root for like two months. <laughs> <laughs> because I have like as much as we talk about this game so often, I have played it so infrequently since uh like November of last year. It's been a solid two months of other games and holidays and doing other shoots and uh, and learning other games for my work. And so I felt so unprepared in this game. Yeah, so you were kind of winging it going in. So, Jake, who, which faction did you pick uh, out of the gate? And were you happy with that pick? The draft pool was terrifying for me. It was the Eerie, two Vagabonds. <sighs> And then uh, Lord of the Hundreds and Badgers. And Lord of the Hundreds and Badgers I've never played before. I, w- I definitely had looked over their boards and their rules plenty of times, but like just never had gotten my hands on them. So I was like, well, with Vagabond on here, I, who I don't want to play, I guess I'll try the Lord of the Hundreds, even though I know I'm going to be competing for 
items, which I knew was just going to be a problem. But I thought Badgers is too much of an enigma to solve. Mm -hmm. And uh, hats off to Francis, who played the Badgers, because I think Francis played a nearly perfect Badger game. He got fortunate with some of his uh, roles and some of his reveals of relics, but he didn't need the fortune most of the time. He uh, managed to cover up clearings in a, in the amount he needed. He usually got three adjacent and then would pull the relic out and it'd be fine. He wouldn't have to lose anybody in his retinue. And then he did a good job of managing to keep me distracted, not really opposing him too much. And the birds were being pacifists on the other side. So with that and the scoundrel taking items from me so I couldn't get my engine up, it was just the Badgers game to lose. Mm. And he didn't. He destroyed us. Yeah, there was a, a big burst about kind of like two thirds of the way through the game, like a huge explosion of points from the Badgers. I think they jumped up to like 28 or something like that. But it was it was like an enormous like, oh, boy, like we were in. We were in danger and didn't realize it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt particularly like I kind of like stumbled out the gate because I definitely like messed up some of the order of my turns a few times uh, with Warlord, just trying to get it all right and like misreading yeah. exactly how many things I could do and such. And I felt like a dummy at it for sure. But it felt worse because I couldn't get anybody. I couldn't talk anybody into doing anything uh, because it was the scoundrel who was wandering around doing his own thing. The birds who literally didn't put a card into battle until their last turn <laughs> and me. Uh, wandering around trying to build strongholds as if that's really important. <laughs> and guess Got what? It. It's not as important as... <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, you give any faction enough latitude and they will win the game. That's how mm-hmm. Root is designed. I think we're all kind of still grappling with the new uh, Marauders factions, trying to understand the threat level and like where that lies. I was going to say, I think that's the lesson I learned the most, was that we let him get away with it. Um, I'm not sure if... I probably could have done something more if I had played better at the top of my turn and made my uh, turns more efficient with spreading things. But still, he got away with so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. On reviewing the tape, it's, it does really feel like the Badgers got to set up exactly how they wanted to. The sc- I have to note that the Scoundrel did blow up the Badgers in the Lost City, which oh. turned off access to the Lost City, which was pretty detrimental to us getting around. But the Badgers found a way around it. So. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, that is such a 2022 move right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, congrats to uh, to Francis, to Gooey Kablooey for that Badgers victory on Mountain Map. Uh, Jake, um, even though you were slain in this game, you are still advancing to round three. That's uh, true. Based on your win from round one. Did that impact your play at all? Uh, well, we, it was brought up during the call of like, wait. Do we know who's won once already? And myself and Francis, who won uh, this game, were both winners in round one. So we did let them know that. And we joked beforehand that, like, well, I guess we can't win. So we'll help you guys figure it out. But we let Francis win. Okay, going through another player with a halo. Interesting. That may turn into a target. Thank you for that image, Sam. That continues to be very funny to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right, game 15, moving on another mountain map game. This one was another Vagabond Warlord competition uh, uh, for items. And it did seem like the Warlord kind of came out on top in this instance here Esau playing the lizards got to 28 victory points was oh. not quite able to close it out and i think a bad outcast was the difference Esau's which, old school too i've seen that name on the discord for many years yeah a really strong player and uh it just it always is painful to see a good lizards game get wrecked by a bad outcast 
but such is the nature of that faction. So I want to throw my congrats to Hansu, who is advancing to round three after a victory with the Warlord on the mountain map. Although Isao is also advancing because of a victory on the first round. So congrats all around. Nice. Also, I just want to shout uh, to Steve Owen. It's always hard to be in competition for items when you're an item-dependent faction. It's never an easy environment to be in. Jake, as I'm sure you can attest. It was painful. The scoundrel took three of the four ruins, one of them right out from under my mob. Yeah, being in a tough situation that way does make it very, very hard to climb all the way up that hill to 30 points. And I so, still wake uh, up screaming, my boot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure you should go to therapy for that, Jake. Uh, all right. <laughs> my therapist's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> the boots! The boots! <laughs> game 16, another game on the mountain map. Keep keep going, guys. If you If you are the person responsible for choosing the map, I would say default to Mountain, just because it makes for the most entertaining games. It's so great. All right. Game 16. uh, We had Rusano coming in uh, with a win in round one. Rusano the Wise. Rusano the Wise. (laughs) But it was Thomas99 as the Woodland Alliance on the Mountain map, pulling out a victory, a late game victory, uh, able to come up with some fancy footwork to move out of the Lost City and organize for the win. But Rusana will also be advancing, so congrats to you two. See you guys in round three. I say see you guys like I'm going to be there, but that is very much unclear at this point because <laughs> I did not win my round one game. Yeah, neither did I, and I'm my nightmare is that I that what if we're in the same game, Kyle? Well, if we are in the same game, Sam, I, of course, am going to ruthlessly take you down. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, we were in one tournament game before, and I got the upper hand on you and Garrick in that game. Oh. It's an old school game. Uh, And yeah, yeah. I I expect nothing less. Uh, Yeah. So I'm due is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I I was asked by. You will make sure I don't go through. I know that. (laughs) I was asked by the players in my game if I get targeted when I play games because of the podcast mm-hmm. in fact when when i when he joined the channel francis goes oh no i got a podcast guy on this <laughs> <laughs> i go don't worry i'm the i'm the non-expert on the podcast i just asked the questions so uh but he asked he asked he's like do you get targeted i said well no i don't play nearly as much as they do but i know kyle did when he was first on digital a little bit right because you were everywhere on digital more oh. less the podcast more your leaderboard position yeah it was the kind of thing where here's where i lament being a public figure but um <laughs> it's yeah, hard I, with the paparazzi and stuff yeah i people are just taking photos of me shopping it's weird um no i mean i think there's a little bit of like when there's no obvious target in a game people will go after the person who is like nominally the threat without necessarily consulting the board state right specifically and so that's a, that's a, just an element to fight against that sure. has come up in my games like i don't want to downplay that because it has definitely happened but mm-hmm. um i don't i don't think it's the biggest factor honestly it happened before we started doing the show because kyle's very good at games and so naturally he will be targeted in any game you can target someone because if if it's just based on who can play the game the best, Kyle's going to win. I mean that's just that's just true for our friend group. We target Kyle. More. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, oh yeah. It yeah. truly does happen. I, I guess I'm just used to it at this point. Like yeah. it doesn't phase me. I expect it. You live <laughs> in live on that it. heat for breakfast. Your world has a Kyle bias. Right. Anti Kyle bias. Yeah, I have to I have to uh, factor that in. 
But yeah, so that is your tournament recap. Winter tournament. Oh, you are up to date. Congratulations, Wimmies. Yeah, all right. Uh, One last piece of root news before we move on to the episode proper, and that is that Oath has been nominated for the South by Southwest Tabletop Game of the Year. Woo! Woo! I'm sure it's up against some other fine games, but come on. It's Oath. It's leader games. It's got to be better. I think Oath should be chancellor of South by Southwest. (laughs) <laughs> Do they? What? I thought that was a music festival. They have a game section. They sold out, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Everything's everything's up for sale when it comes to South by Southwest. Fair. Speaking of Woodland War Machine, will be performing at South by Southwest, and then no, we're not. No, we're <laughs> <laughs> soon. All right. Now the Root RPG is almost here. It is so close you can almost taste the pages. <laughs> I am very excited for this and we have an upcoming episode which what? I won't I, I won't say that we are playing the Root RPG with Becca Scott, but I also won't say we're not playing the Root RPG with Becca Scott. So get hyped Wimmies. I'm psyched. <laughs> I'm psyched. It's going to be the best episode yet. Yeah. Easily. All right. Now it's time to go on with this old schlubby episode where we talk about <laughs> going against the Riverfolk Company, which I think you guys, this is the hardest guide. I had I had a lot of trouble putting this together. I was going to say, I was thinking about this guide when I was brushing my teeth this morning. I thought, wait a minute. Is this the hardest one to write because everybody can affect them on their turn? It This faction has a lot of cooperation involved. Right? Like, oh, you give me some of this, I'll give you some of that. Yeah. And so playing against them is a really, really tricky situation. There is a social element that comes with countering the Riverfolk Company. You can't do it purely mechanically. It is, it is such a balancing act to fight against. But that being said, there are mechanical elements that you can lean on to kind of assist with your uh your fight against this most insidious of financial organizations (laughs) but there's that added layer too of just like you can't you can choose to not help them but you can't make the other two players at the table choose not to help them well you can you can you can all swear that you're not gonna (laughs) buy anything you know pinky promise but then that this guy rapidly becomes versus the otters and two other people (laughs) <laughs> it's it's hard it's hard yeah 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 for sure i think yeah. this is the most difficult one for sure so hang yeah. on is this podcast just prisoner's dilemma the podcast <laughs> <laughs> this one can be really tricky i think i think prisoner's dilemma is is a good touchstone for what we're gonna have to discuss today yeah now the Riverfolk company as we all know is one of the most opportunistic greedy and self-centered factions in the game of root right They may rely on the actions of others to get their engine rolling, but before you know it, the table has given them the exact tools that they need to pull off a huge swing for the win. Yeah. And worst of all, you know that it might have gone differently if you hadn't just purchased from them. Or maybe if if just the other players had not purchased from them and you still got to purchase from them. Either way, in this guide, we're hoping to identify what the river folk is capable of so that that slippery slope to Greedyville can have a little bit more traction. Ooh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a short distance from fiduciary to fiduciary. <laughs> <laughs> we had a listener of the podcast write us here. They said, "The last capitalist we shall hang be the one who sold us the rope." <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's by listener Carl Marx. <laughs> Shout out Thank to you, K Marks. Yeah, K Marks. Uh, good luck in your tournament game. <laughs> All right, it's time to assess this faction's threat level. Careful if he's playing Woodland Alliance on the winter map. That's all I'm gonna say. Wee <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little late with that joke. Sorry. <laughs> Jake will fix the timing in post. All right, our threat level here is red orange. Yeah. Which I want to say orange red, but the color that I looked up, I actually looked up the colors because I was like, what's the most red orange color there is? And it's called a red orange. <laughs> okay. All right. That might have been a product of your Google search there. <laughs> <laughs> what's the most red orange? That was just going to be like red oranges. <laughs> have you tried red orange? <laughs> <laughs> what's the most chicken? Chicken. <laughs> like I said, it was the hardest guy I've had to write. <laughs> I put four hours into this color coding system last night. B Burnt Sienna got crossed off in hour one, and then I was like lost. So, whew, okay. <laughs> now, the reason why they're red, orange, or burnt sienna, or flame. <laughs> Not only are the river folk a huge threat to win the game, but their tournament performances uh, seem to back this up. Before the current winter tournament that we've got going on, the otters held the best win rate of any faction in the game. Looking at you, Vagabond. But in the current winter tournament, they have the fourth highest win rate, even though they have been uh, in the least amount of games of any other faction other than two Vagabonds, which is actually not far behind. So something's going on with the winter tournament. Maybe it's just the draft pool isn't being favorable. Maybe they're not being chosen. But either way, we're not quite seeing the same river folk dominance we did in the past. It's a bit of a surprise, to be honest, especially given how dominant they were in last year's tournament, I feel like you would expect people to kind of zero in on that and try and like repeat the past. But I, I, I do think the kind of awareness of the threat level of the river folk has improved. Yes. Uh, in, in the past year for sure. And, and maybe given that the meta last time was about how dominant the river folk were, people were kind of coming in a little more skeptical or a little more kind of ready to shut it down. And we've definitely seen some good plays against the Riverfolk in the current winter tournament, which is exciting. Sam, I, I wonder if you could tell us, like, what made them so dominant in the last iteration of the winter tournament? I mean, I think point blank, the Riverfolk are just a great tournament faction because when people are desperate, their greed and need to get ahead tempts them into buying from the faction whose ability to race the end of the game is not to be underestimated. Mm-hmm. It's so tempting. Like, I just need this card, you know? But if everybody does that, if everybody just needs the card, then the river folk are going to win. They're very good at racing the game. I would say them, a particular build of moles, and the vagabond are probably the best three at racing, right? Birds, maybe I would maybe agree. And, and there's kind of that switch when it goes from we're all getting set up and jockeying for position to, oh, no, they've started racing. Yeah. <laughs> And they can and it's that transition on. happens so fast with the river folk. And I I do think that we saw players caught a little bit off guard last year. Yeah. 
especially around the timing of that transition to where it's like, oh, feeding the river folk is actually the difference between me winning and losing my game right now. It also just feels like one of those root narratives you learn is like overfeeding the otters. And it's a tough one because you relearn it a few times too. <laughs> um, but I think that the this tournament, I think it's seeing the highest level of play that we've seen in any root tournament. So it's it's not surprising to me that I guess that it's like curved a little bit, their their win rate. But mm-hmm. um, still, it's a it's a very competitive faction, even when people are playing well against them. Definitely. You can never count them out fully. Right. They're a threat to win the race, as well as being a faction that can completely wreck the board in search of that, mmm, cardboard. You know, they have, like, a huge impact on both the tempo of the game, but also, like, they could come in and wreck your whole shop, you know? Mm -hmm, They could mm -hmm. come in and take your clearings away just for a couple cardboard points because they need them. And maybe the scariest part about that, too, is in in a race kind of context, usually they have the actions at the end of a game to just kind of go and, like, hammer a clearing into dust yeah. to get the cardboard they need. Yeah. There's, like, usually not a shortage of, of actions that <laughs> that they bump up against too often at right. the end I of mean- a game, at the end of a race. So, so, like, whatever your kind of turtley stack of warriors, however secure you feel in that, just know. Towards the end of the game, it won't matter. Like the river folk are coming for you, they will chew through it to get to that cardboard. Yeah, and it, it and it's brutal too because if they don't use those actions to chew through you, they could use those actions milling the deck looking for coins. They could use those actions drawing cards. It's it's it, there's a lot that they have options with, and that's what makes them so good. Yeah. In fact, I would flexible. say the only thing keeping these river capitalists from being a true red threat level faction is the fact that. If everyone is super disciplined, they can thoroughly destroy the otter's ability to get a foothold in the game. I'm talking about don't buy. We are boycotting the river folk, all right? If everyone does it, their ability to race plummets, all right? But good luck with that. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, nobody buy, okay? Cool. Yeah, nobody Great. buy. I'm not certainly not going to buy. Oh, I'm not going to buy. No. Yeah. No. Never. Not at those prices. Wouldn't dream of buying <laughs> at all. At all. Well, let's talk about it, right? Is that if no one buys, they are the low point score at the table, which makes them more tempting to buy from because they are oh. not a threat when you purchase if you need to cinch the victory out from the other Jake? two true competitors. At the Jake? Table. Jake? We said we weren't going to buy. We're know, not buying. I'm telling you what your opponents are thinking, guys. I know we all agreed, but round round nine is about to happen, and I need that card. All right, I'm going to buy Mercenaries to destroy Jake. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. And I need this card because I'm the lizard, so I'm going to buy this card. But after that, no one's buying. <laughs> yeah, it is such a, um, it, it's such a, like, round-robin kind of logic that always happens with the river folk, where it's just, like, two people succeed in not buying, and then the third one's like, well, they're, <laughs> they need the help. Or, like, <laughs> they're not a threat anyway, so I'm just going to buy from them and get myself an advantage. Well, sometimes it's also that we need the help, right? Because we might need them. So the question remains of when do we start to feed them for the effort of policing the other two? Here's the yeah. thing. If they're willing to work with the table to solve a problem, that's the basis of a negotiation. Mm-hmm. But if they're, if, you know, if, if it's just players being greedy... And giving those funds away without strings attached. I'm just saying, like, go on, do your game. Like, I, I just want this card. 
have fun. <laughs> I I think the cost is ultimately it's too high mm-hmm. for each player. You give the river folk too many options uh, that they are going to use to optimize their own game. But if you're able to like work something out with them to deal with a threat, I feel like that's a little bit different. If you can win slay by cooperating with the river folk, that buys everybody else a turn. So it might be worth it. Yeah, it's just so tricky, you know. <laughs> you don't because you're not exactly sure what they're capable of. Sure, you can see the trade posts that they could put down, and you can see all the cards that they could craft, right? But they could still draw more cards. Mm. They could also do the thing where they're like, "Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, pay me to go take care of that that target. Yeah, let's do that." And then when it comes to their turn, they're going to be like, "Or I could get to 28 points and essentially wrap up this game." They're the uh, are they you the know? only faction that can draw a card in their daylight at their choosing? I mean, I know they have to spend a fund, but yeah, right. Yeah, that's also another like watch out. If they choose to abandon the agreement, they can just choose to draw some better options and then find it too. The card advantage of the Riverfolk Company is insane. Is insane, especially when they start to get between five and seven funds every single turn. It's just like they just replenish the hand craft something past the turn like it, it steamrolls so fast and as designed though that's like they're supposed to be the card machines because you can buy the cards from their hand even though they are the only faction where they don't get the auto draw they have to work for every card they get but it's usually not a problem yeah <laughs> all right sam let's let's kind of dissect this faction a little bit in order to find a weak spot we got to know what it is that the river folk need to succeed First things first, simple, simple, simple. They need funds. Now, you can't fully starve them of new funds because if no one buys, they will get two new funds anyway, right? Yeah. They will, there's, well, I forget what it's called, protectionism. Protectionism, yeah. Right, where they get two uh, warriors in their own payments box at the beginning of their turn if they didn't receive any other payments. And this... So it seems like, well, if I give them two of mine, what's the difference? You know, if I give them two of mine and buy a card versus they're going to get two anyway. But yeah, you essentially pay for their protectionism in a way. Right. You buy right, it for right. them. However, having a diversity of funds is almost always better for the river folk. Right. Because this allows them to set down trade posts in your area. And they're always going to probably have enough of their own funds. And to put down trade posts that way, they're going to have to move their otter ball around the map, dropping off little trade posts, right? So if they can get to a corner, if you're in a, if you rule a corner, they can use your funds to take care of that trade post and forget about it. So even though it might seem equal, hey, it's two warriors here, it's two warriors there, there is a slight advantage in having other people's warriors if you're the Riverfolk Company. So, yes. For those of you that don't know the board as well as others, when the otters build trading posts, if they want to build it in a clearing that is ruled by another player, they have to spend funds from that other player's faction, right? It's the funds that come from those soldiers, right? right. That's right. Got it. Okay. It just makes it a little more efficient. Let's talk about this just in a little bit of depth right right away. Basically, if the otters want to build a trade post in a clearing that they rule, they have to use their own meeples, which they get from protectionism. But that also means they have to maintain that warrior ball to control a clearing. If there's already a trade post in a clearing, they can't build another one. So they're going to have to go out in search of another one. Spending funds to move, spending funds to battle if necessary, spending funds to recruit. 
spending those same funds to build a trade post. The whole thing just kind of slows down until they start getting other people's meeples. One of my favorite phrases ever. <laughs> Once they get those, they can just spend them kind of any time they want to uh, and get a free trade post. It's just two free points. Very flexible. The more diversity of funds they have, the faster they can rack up the points. So just don't buy, right? Just don't buy. <laughs> I'm not going to. Hey, I'm not buying. I haven't bought once except for the first turn. At this point of the game, though, that card would really help me. No, no, no. But we said, Jake, we weren't going to buy. No, I know. But, guys, I'm like six points away from a victory. And if I could just, right? I mean, honestly, we're all we're all joking. But Jacob brings up a good point, right? The first two players don't buy. The third player kind of gets to buy. Because one or two wise purchases amongst the other players at the table probably won't be enough to totally give the river folk the game. So what we're really trying to do in this guide is try to recognize a good time to buy and make sure that you're the person who hits that timing. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of blanket advice that comes out of just don't buy, which makes total sense, and I am not opposed to that advice, but someone's statistically likely to buy, and you want it to be you. Right. Yes. You can't be the person, though, that unnecessarily buys. And here's... I'm just going to throw out one moment when it is just inadvisable to buy, and that is before... The Riverfolk Company's first turn. Here's why. The Riverfolk Company does not get protectionism on their first turn. They start with three warriors in the payments box. Mm -hmm. On any other turn, they would get like an automatic two, but not on that first turn. They just start with three. So if you buy before they get their first turn, that is like just extra money for them to like win the game on. And it's it's funny that like early funds do the most work over the course of the game. It's like investing. If you invest like a bunch really, really early on, like that's going to grow and grow over time, compound interest and all that. With the Riverfolk Company, if you buy early, then they get to spend those funds repeatedly over the course of the game, gaining value with them, doing more actions, drawing more cards. So the best time to buy from the Riverfolk Company is actually kind of later in the game, as you alluded to, Jake. If you're six points away from victory... Buy all you want. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, who's going to stop you? But if you're buying a lot really early on, Riverfolk Company is just going to get more and more ahead. The problem with using the Riverfolk to get yourself ahead is that everyone else is going to use the Riverfolk to bring you back down. And then everyone has bought from the Riverfolk Company. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, it can happen so quickly where it's like, oh, we were using you. And now you're using us, you know? Right. The whole balance is like, when is it okay? When is it safe to make a purchase, essentially? Yeah. And that off that the answer of that is rarely. But you have to, you also kind of have to assess it because you're not going to know ahead of time sometimes. And sometimes it's important that you do it ahead of time, right? Yeah. I, I would say a kind of a similar calculation goes into like, when do you craft the T? Mm -hmm. Right? Because mm -hmm. two points, pretty nice. But if you craft it on turn one, for that Vagabond, like, the Vagabond's going to get the most value possible out of that team. Right. And you just don't want that. So the the later it goes, the, you know, the less valuable those individual funds become to the, the river folk. Right. But Assuming also, they're not within punching distance. Uh, sure, exactly. Yeah. 
But the prices tend to go up later in the game too, right? We've all noticed right. this that at a certain point the river folk just go, everything costs four now. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, it it is a, a timing consideration for sure. But just know that if you're gonna lean heavy on the river folk early in the game, other people are gonna have to lean on the river folk to bring you back. That's a good point you made, Sam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So any kind of artificial growth uh is gonna be also artificially stopped and it's going to be an otter win for sure yeah yeah so let's talk about another need that these capitalists have and that's warriors i would argue that warriors are the true currency of the riverfolk company having warriors on the board yes that presence is incredibly valuable to the the riverfolk especially if they're relying on that protectionism throughout the early part of the game Right. And why why is it so important, Kyle, that the river folk have like a ball of warriors? Two reasons. Early in the game, but so that they can put down trade posts with ease. Mm-hmm. Second is late in the game so that they can go and collect that cardboard. Right. And it, it's an interesting, I, I'm sure many listeners of the podcast have seen it before. You got your otter ball. You move your otter ball to a different clearing where you now rule and put down another trade post. Well, guess what a trade post comes with? A garrison. So now your otter ball is growing, which you then take to another clearing to do the same thing. Um, So this is a a huge part of their strategy of being self-reliant. Because outside of this, they really need you to buy. So this is a, a, a strategy that otter players take to take more control of their own destiny is yeah. to get this otter ball going and, and and building it with the trade posts. So if you're able to whittle down that otter ball, especially early on, you can prevent that, that otter ball from rolling down the hill at capitalist speed. Every <laughs> fund that the otters spend recruiting is a fund that they don't get to spend on a trade post. Yeah, or drawing a card. Or drawing a card. Or attacking you. So... Yeah, every single warrior that's removed is quite painful for the river folk. And as simplistic as it sounds, one of the best ways to check them is to kind of like hamper the formation of the otter ball. Just hit those warriors. And this this is another reason why this faction is so good and and, and a, a almost a red faction for me. It has that vagabond non-incentive to attack, right? The biggest thing you can do against the river folk is remove their warriors. Well, guess what? That doesn't get me any points to remove their warriors. At best, there's one trade post (laughs) in that clearing, right? (laughs) So at what point do you use the otter ball against itself with mercenaries, right? Not that you can trigger the otters to fight themselves, but you can have them fight one of your opponents in a clearing that you might not be in. Or you are in and just don't want to commit your forces. that's a good opportunity to look for. If mercenaries are two and they are in a clearing with one of your enemies and you have no pieces in that clearing, that is a good opportunity to buy mercenaries and whittle down their otter ball. Like we don't really want to buy, but if you can remove three of their warriors in that clearing with a battle or two, well then you've you've net negative their amount of warriors that they have on on their faction board and on the map. So and whatever you took out on the other side of that battle, right? Right, right. And the best part about a weakened river folk is that means you might be able to buy something. <laughs> but we're not, Sam, we're, not but we're not buying. We're not buying. We're not going buy. to buy. I'm not going to buy. I'm not going to buy. You know why this guide is the hardest? Is because it's so bipolar. 
<laughs> We're so hot B-U-Y and cold on purchasing. Polar. Yeah. Polar. Um, one of the golden rules here is if you buy from the river folk, spend an action checking the river folk. Mm-hmm. It's just this is you have to factor that in as part of the economy. It's like one of those things where if you only think about how much money you're going to make from fossil fuels, but don't like factor in all the other <laughs> considerations there, like you're not calculating the full cost of what it is that you're doing. So I would say, like, factor in the cost, hit the river folk if you're going to buy from them. That's a good way to just prevent the formation of that otter ball that could easily close out the game in a race. And be clear to be clear about hitting the otter folk, you mean hitting their warriors, right? Because maybe we'll get into this discussion a little bit later, but taking out the trade posts is somewhat dicey sometimes. There is specific advice around taking out trade right. posts, which we are definitely going to dive into in special teams. But for now, rule of thumb, destroy the warriors. Okay. That's what you mean by check them, is hit hit the ball. Hit the ball. That mm-hmm. is their source of power in the late game. That is their source of points in the early game. Make mm-hmm. sure that you do your best to diminish it. Another huge need that the River Folk has is they need 12 points. Yes, this is a tally that you should make public. The River Folk have a very, very notable gulf, a gap. They have 18 points on their player board that they can get I mean, it's not easy, but they're pretty much guaranteed to be to get the chance to put down most of their trade posts. Right. That's capped at 18 points. They have no other faction point generation beyond that. So there's this 12-point gap that always exists in a River Folk game. And, you know, if they do a little crafting here, if they hit a little cardboard there, it's really, really good to keep track of how, how much progress they've made on this 12-point gap. Because they, they need it every game, right? They can't be self-sufficient beyond 18 points. I just want to issue a small correction in what Kyle said. Because you, Kyle, you said there's no other way they can get points uh, on their faction board. And that's not true. There's dividends, Kyle. Okay, you're, you're correct. You're correct. <laughs> and, and we will get into to dividends as well in the special teams section. But yes, dividends, that is true. A, a strategy that the river folk have of hoarding their funds in order to get points for them. It's a very risky strategy. I'm, I'm kind of joking because it's almost never done uh, competitively. There's kind of like an early dividend strategy. And I think we talked about it in our river folk guide, but um, I was just having a little fun. Yeah. They need those 12 points and they're going to get it from crafting and hitting cardboard. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a point or two from dividends if they're being very savvy, right. uh, but we will get into the the dividend strategy i actually weirdly i see dividends plays on root digital like fairly regularly i've i try to start my river folk games with dividends these days just just to kind of see what's there um all right <laughs> but the way we deny them these 12 points the easiest thing is crafting these items before the river folk can okay that's an essential part of denying them these much desired 12 points like, yeah, they're good crafters. They're good crafters. They can draw the cards, they can put the trade posts down, and they have permanent crafting pieces. So right. if you don't craft it, they certainly are going to. Right. This might be like an exception of like crafting that tea early. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't crunched the numbers on it. But <laughs> um, certainly the worst case scenario is that the otters get the two points and the vagabond gets the tea anyway. That's certainly the worst scenario. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or they have the T card and the Vagabond buys it from them. Maybe that's Ooh. the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might be right. <laughs> also, a, a big point of, of trying to deny them these last 12 points is recognizing when and where the Riverfolk Company will be looking for those battles. 
in and to get those cardboard points, right? If you see a cat clearing with a couple sawmills, you know that turn five or six, that's where they're going. Yep. You know, clearings with multiple pieces of cardboard of one faction where they can just bash away the warriors and take that mm, cardboard. And this could be so <laughs> tricky, too, because the mobility of the river folk just goes up and up as the game progresses. And once they stop needing to drop those trade posts as often, I mean, they are their movement is insane. They can go along the river regardless of rule, uh, thanks to their swimmer's ability. It can be actually really difficult to calculate where on the map they're going to strike with their little otter force. So it, it kind of, in the, a similar way to the Woodland Alliance, it forces everybody to kind of beef up their defenses towards the end of the game yeah. and kind of harden their resolve because you just can't always predict where the otters are going to be able to go uh, to find those last couple of points. Which uh, brings us nicely into our countercrafting section where... This is, I, I always think that this section where we talk about the items is not going to matter. But this is one of the factions where it truly, truly, truly does. You want to craft those items early. Go out of your way to craft those items early. Yep. Especially teas and, and coins. Like, if they get a couple boots and a bag, like, who cares? But Early so they don't draw them is what you're saying, right? Right. They will have the capability of crafting these things if you leave them on the table too long because right. they can mill the deck because they never lose crafting pieces. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. As a reminder, their crafting spaces are the vacancies on their board from their trade post deployment. Right. So once they play that trade post, they got it forever, even if it's removed from the map. Yeah. They're crafting machines in the end game if they can get there. Uh, so really craft everything as quick as possible. I guess I know it's we always speak of this in a vacuum. So I guess what's your consideration when the Vagabond and or the Lord of the Hundreds is at the table? I'd say focus on the high value items. Yeah, I would say that that's yeah. one of the things yeah. I would think of is like coins are, I mean, like less valuable in the grand scheme of things than the tea or something. I mean, probably wait on the hammer, maybe mm -hmm. craft, I don't know, the crossbow or something else like Okay. I would say boots and bags, go for it. Just like craft it, craft it up. Yeah. Craft it up. Swords, I don't know. That's actually an open question. But may maybe go for swords if you can do it. Again, they just need 12 points. Yeah. So, I mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they are going to try and get those through crafting because they don't want to necessarily waste those early actions on battling for cardboard necessarily. Right. There's too much synergy, right? They can draw cards yes. and they can easily craft it. So let's get into the specific cards that we want to try and craft in order to slow down this menace. So talking about the base deck here, what do you think, Sam? What, what, what should be the cards that we should focus on? Well, I'm not a big ambush guy. <laughs> I don't value ambushes too much. Uh, maybe it's just my lizard and bird leanings, but I always use the cards for their suits almost more than for their ability. Um, but yeah, you're ambushing purist. the Liz. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm a cultist, you know, I've, I've got my, okay. my piety to consider <laughs> ambushing. The warriors on the board is huge. The river folk company yeah. needs warriors on the board. We talked about that. So a free two being removed is, is key, especially because you know that they're coming for you. If you're a cardboard faction, if you're the cats with sawmills, if you're the lizards with a couple gardens, they're coming for you. And so having yeah. that ambush at the right time can, at the very least, kind of 
assure some mutually assured destruction. Yes, it can put out a fire uh, on the spot. Yeah. Notice we did not put um, code breakers on this uh, base deck list here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at a player's hand. Isn't that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's just no need. There's yeah. just no need. And this goes to show, like, we, we were really scraping the barrel for, like, cards from the base deck that actually counter the river folk. It's so hard to use crafting to beat them when it's not items. Right. Yeah, the items are way more important than the crafted improvements, in my opinion. And so many of the improvements alter battle, which is kind of just true for all factions, right? Yeah, Kyle, I see you got, like, armors and sappers here. And I think that's a decent shout for when you check them. Anything that gives you a little bit of extra, like, protection in battle. I mean, sappers I usually don't have on lists like this because it tends to be more valuable as a bird suit than as an actual card. But sappers actually can make a difference with the Riverfolk because, seriously, every single warrior is valuable that's to a, them that's true that's a good shout their warriors are so expensive for the river folk that's their card draw that's their movements that you're taking away mm-hmm. so i i think being able to take out an extra warrior with sappers can i mean it's probably not going to be that decisive necessarily but even the threat of it can make the river folk think twice in the mid game about where they're going to attack you or how much force they're going to bring with them you know the 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 best way to counter the river folk is to slow them down as much as you can. Yeah. To, uh, like kind of attrition style, like take out their warriors. And uh, I think sappers is a decent way to do that. Yeah. Uh, the only crafted improvement I could kind of come up with here that wasn't battle related was better burrow bank. Uh, in the idea that you would not give the river folk the card, obviously, but this is a way you can be like, Hey, you're not going to buy from the river folk, right? So here, I will give you a card, right? With Better Burrow Bank. Uh, Kyle, how about you read us a little bit of what Better Burrow Bank is to better illuminate these people? Sure, Sam. Better Burrow Bank. At the start of Birdsong, you and another player draw a card. Right. So who needs the river folk, right? We can all just kind of take turns <laughs> getting extra cards and we don't have to buy them from the river folk. You can be your own bank. You don't have to go That's to true. the private sector, okay? This is good old banking, you know? I do think the Riverfolk kind of hate to see this card crafted because they're like, man, you're providing the service that I already provide. Right. Come on, you should you should go to the store and not get it for free. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think Better Borough Bank, depending on turn order, can be a nice cudgel to uh, beat your fellow root players with uh, to kind of convince them to not buy. Right. Say, like, if you buy from the Riverfolk, not getting better better borough bank this right. turn. So if you go right before the river folk, you're probably going to have the most success with that type of strategy. But still, craft it for yourself. Craft it for the players at the table who are willing to work with you. Make a deal. All right, let's go over to ENP, the Exiles and Partisans deck. We got a few on the list here. First up, we got Eerie Emigre. What? I thought we said it was trash and no one should play with it and you should rip it up and throw it in a fireplace. Jake, tell us what Eerie Emigre does. <laughs> Eerie Emigre, also known as Cole's favorite card. <laughs> At the end of Birdsong, take a move, then initiate a battle in a clearing you moved into. If you did not take both actions, discard this card. This can just be a good way for factions um, that might really need to buy from the river folk to do their part in checking the river folk. Cough, cough, cats, cough, cough, lizards. <laughs> Both of those factions are inherently interested in the river folk services because they need the extra cards. Cats want the birds, lizards want all the rest. However, 
Uh, those factions are really action poor, especially when it comes to those moves and battles. So this could be a really good way for those factions to keep the the river folk in check while still using their services to kind of uh, make up for the difference in uh, how good the faction is, essentially. Right. And, and we maybe could have shouted out Command Warren in the base deck for kind of similar reasons, right? Any kind of action-starved faction needs just a little extra uh, avenue to check the river folk. And, you know, something like Eerie Emigrate could go a long way because the chip damage stacks up over time, especially if you start early. So I, I like this shout. I think this is a good one. Command Warren's so hard. It's at the at the start of daylight, right? Yeah. And it's just like, I can't move and then battle. I have to battle where I'm at. So it's like the whole... There had to be a whole round of turns where they are still where I need them to be to battle. It's just hard. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Yeah, for sure. Better Borough Bank is much yeah. more straightforward, I think. Another shout that the Discord pointed out was Charm Offensive. Charm Offensive says, at the start of evening, may draw a card and choose another player to score one point. Yeah, I guess this card is good. Um, it's good for <laughs> drawing extra cards, which you will need to do. Um, because if you're not buying from the river folk, it's a good way to get extra cards without feeding them. And you can give that point to someone who's not the river folk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in the context of a race type of endgame, I think this card can be very valuable. Because usually there's one faction at the table who's not so good at racing. Right. At least. And that can be your kind of sink for Charm Offensive points. Um, I've seen Charm Offensive used aggressively to, like, give a point to the player in the lead to, like, spur action from the rest of the table. I, I just feel like that's a little too risky, and the target's already going to be on their back. So, like, don't need to necessarily attempt that. But that's a that's a brave gambit. I've seen it used. <laughs> I've seen it used like that. Whoa. Yeah, it is. It's something. Yeah. It's. It's a play. Listen to last week's Root Pretty to find out what I'm talking about. All right. I think actually another great card to have in your stable is Marine Broker. This to me is the card that you should craft if you're going against the River Folk. Jake, will you tell us what Marine Broker does? Uh, In a heartbeat. Marine Broker. Whenever another player crafts an item, draw a card. Hey! Like we said, there's this 12-point gap the River Folk have to make up. They're going to use crafting to, to make up some of that that uh, difference there and just make sure that you are taxing them every time they do. I mean, they're capitalists. They're naturally going to try and evade taxes as much as possible, but Marine broker is a good way to make sure that if they're going to craft that item, they pay a price and that price is feeding you. All right. And they can't craft it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You deny them the ability to craft it. I mean, that goes for all of where really for all of these, but I mean, I think another highlighted factor of these cards that we're choosing, because we could choose a few more is like the fact that we don't want them to get it. Correct, yeah. Yeah, and on that reshuffle, it's possible that they go searching. I think we say this a lot of times, like, so they don't craft it, but what are the chances that we're going to get through a reshuffle and then they're going to be the player that draws it? With the River Folk, that percentage is definitely higher than other factions. Um, Swap Meat is a great is a great card to use against them because the River Folk are trying to curate their hand of cards to be the most... Uh, appetizing for people to surrender part of their game in order to obtain them. However, <laughs> you can just have them shuffle them into a random deck and take one of them, and maybe you get the good one. 
either way, you can throw some junk back at their hand. It's not going to totally slow them down, but um, it's something you can do. I thought this was going to be the card that you were definitively like, do this one, because it's such an evil little free, let's see what we can take from them option. <laughs> and if we don't like it, we'll just give it right back. Yeah, it's I mean, it's fun. It's a good it's a good craft and it's cheap and there's many of them in the deck. So it's it's something you're going to see happen. Uh, but Marine Broker, you just can't turn down those extra cards like that. Right. Yeah, I love the suggestion of swap meet because especially cycling out those valuable cards makes it less tempting for other people to buy. Yeah. At the same time as you diminish the power of the otter's hand. The one thing I will say about swap meet is just remember to use it. <laughs> I feel like I see people forget to use swap meet more than pretty much any other yeah. card, I think. Yeah. It's all those beginning of burn song things. Also, buying from the river folk is something that gets forgotten. But don't remind people because we're not buying this game, guys. No, no one is. No one's no one purchasing is, anything. Of course not. All right, let's talk about another card that is is probably on the same level as Marine Broker in terms of its effectiveness against these otters, and that's Coffin Makers. Jake, hit us up with Coffin Makers. Coffin Makers. Whenever any warriors would return to a supply, place them on this card instead. At the start of Birdsong, you score one point per five warriors here, then return all warriors here to their supplies. Oof. Yeah, it's good be for so many reasons. River folk are spending funds when they... Uh, recruit warriors or place trade posts and those warriors spent go to the coffins so that's going to be great for your points but also the river folk as we talked about are going to be swinging that big otter ball around decimating clearings of warriors to try to get at that mm, cardboard so th that is like double dipping into the fact that these otters are going to be giving you lots of warriors for those coffins i feel like this kind of plays into the theme of like Whatever their strategy is, just use these cards to, like, tax them a little bit mm -hmm. and, um, you know, make it cost something for them to go for their kind of main ideas. You know, don't let them get away with it for free. Last thing about Coffin Makers is this is a great denial craft because think about what happens when the river folk craft Coffin Makers. <laughs> Every meeple they spend goes to Coffins. They actually can control how many points they are scoring through Coffins. <sighs> Isn't that horrible? Oh. Like, I just, I feel ill thinking about it. It's the worst. So don't do yourself a favor. Don't let the river folk craft coffin makers. So gross. <laughs> All right. And how about false orders? False orders in Birdsong may discard this card to move half of an enemy's warriors rounded up from any clearing as if you were that player ignoring rule. Split that otter ball, baby. Oh, yeah. Cut it in two, chop it to bits. And move it away <laughs> from the river. Yeah, this is actually kind of a nice move. Um, so if all sorters is going to be great, kind of no matter what. But one thing you can do, a little trick that we've learned in our long hours in the root mines, is uh, if you send that otter ball away from the river, suddenly the movement gets very tricky for the river folk. Along the river, life is groovy. They get to move without... Uh, caring about rule at all but as soon as they're off of the river um the woods become very hostile to otters i get <laughs> i don't know if this is like a real life thing like otters can't survive in the woods or whatever but in a game of root it really is like this like as soon as they get away from the river things get kind of tense for them they always are trying to get back to the water so if you can false orders the otter ball split their forces send it away um a good follow-up for this is to try and trap that half of the otter ball away from the river how? Just by moving them there? 
two ways. One is you can stack up your own warriors there and gain rule over that clearing, make it difficult to move out of. Uh, the other way is to just attack either half until they can't move there. It's good. Makes sense. I mean, False yeah. Orders is obviously like the best counter crafting card in the game, probably. Uh, it has the most like impact on someone else's game, a, a way you can weaponize them against themselves. Uh, but it feels like especially important to do to the Otter Ball. That's true. It's a generic like, oh, need to mess somebody up? False Orders. Right. Yeah, but specifically with the Otters because they concentrate their forces, or at least right. they tend to. Like there's a usually a pretty obvious target for this card. Like, the false orders, when it hits the board, should be um, kind of like a high alert for the otters player, right? They should see that and be like, oh, no, like, that could wreck my game. Right. What if what if your otter doesn't ball up? What if they do, like, nine warriors in three different clearings? Well, then that's good for you, right? right? Because in in their end game phase, they're going to be less effective at crunching through to get cardboard to close the gap. Mm-hmm. So if they've chosen to split up their warriors because they're afraid of a false orders then that's the best craft you ever crafted. <laughs> Great. Then they false orders themselves for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now we've got boat builders. Uh, was the thinking behind this that it's just like you already got a river folk service and you don't need to buy it? Is that the idea? That is the idea, Sam. Yeah, no, I think the river folk hate when people craft boat builders because they're like, hey, that I'm supposed to offer that service. <laughs> and then that player's just like, cool. Well, I, I get to do it. I, I built my own boat. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, uh, the other thing that capitalists don't like is when people are self-sufficient. So, <laughs> craft boat builders. Love it. All right. It is that time of every versus guide where you <laughs> might have a river folk problem if... <laughs> The river folk has seven or more funds and still has warriors on the board. I feel like that's going to turn into like a drop in like an electronic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, if they've got seven plus funds, I think that's a good threshold at which to be concerned. Yeah, I was asking Uh, the discord today and people were like seven, eight, nine. It depends on if they're from multiple sources or it's just river folk warriors and stuff. But I kind of conservatively said seven warriors. If they have seven warriors in their funds box and they still have any warriors on the board, mm-hmm. <laughs> then that's a bad situation. You might have a river folk problem. Yeah. And the reason we say seven is because think about it this way. Like a trade post costs two funds. Mm-hmm. So, and they get two for protectionism. So if they they start with seven and they get two from protectionism, they can spend those two for a trade post to get an extra warrior on the board. And then they've got seven funds to work with, right? Moving, drawing cards, battling. That's just a lot of flexibility. That's a a huge action economy for any other faction, right? Taking seven actions as the cats would be, like, insane. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think seven is a pretty good amount. Yeah. Regardless of their points, too. Like, just agnostic of that information, seven is scary. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when the river folk... River folk can kind of play from behind a lot. Because they can just keep accumulating these funds and there's really nothing you can do to stop that except for trade disruption which is not going to happen yeah well and we'll talk about that a little bit later but yeah well we should define it for the folks trade disruption is whenever they lose a trade post they lose half of their funds rounded down rounded up yes yeah they lose half of the meeples in the funds box rounded up rounded up okay but the not 
if they've spent the funds, then those funds are not touchable. If the funds are in the payments box, those funds are not touchable. It's only the ones they've left in the funds box unused. And that's pretty rare for them to bother to do that. And if it is, it's like one, which, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's only to break up a dividends play. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the main reason why dividends is not seen that often in competitive play or only in like utterly safe situations. Right. Um, but yes, we, we'll talk about that in depth in special teams. All right. Well, you might have a river folk problem if they've crafted the big ticket items. We're talking coins. We're talking tea. Kyle, I think you said early on, you should have a tally of how many of those 12 points they've already got. Because it's not like yeah, they score the 18 and then they score the final 12. No, no. The 12 is a work in progress through the entire game. If they've made good progress on scoring the 12, the 18 is not far behind usually. Right. And yeah, if crafting coins and tea, that puts, if they craft coins and tea, that puts them almost halfway through their their 12 points that they need. Like, right. It, it, this is an urgent problem if they are making progress that well. Right. Well, you might have a river vote problem if the otter player takes payments in exchange for policing the board and then doesn't follow through on policing the board. Uh-oh. You might have a big river folk problem. <laughs> oh, it makes me it keeps me up at night. I think I have an ulcer forming just from imagining this. <laughs> Because, you know, if it's good for their game, they'll do it. And deals are not binding in root. So this situation can and will pop up from time to time. I mean, it's a calculated risk on the otter's part. They know if they break their word, they become the target. But they must feel like they're in a pretty good spot if they break their word. So you definitely have a problem if they feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I mean, don't put yourself in a position where you're paying them so much that they're tempted to race with those funds instead of follow through because they're good at racing so like you just kind of have to know that they're very duplicitous these capitalists and they will take your money and run (laughs) just before you spend the money look at their board and say if i had that (laughs) could i make a run for the end of the game and if the answer is no then like maybe you're fine to spend it but you, yeah, you got to think about it, too. The otters also need an extra turn to win. So, like, they should be motivated to help stop the leader, um, even without the payment, if it's really that dire. So, yeah, really, especially late in the game, make sure that your deal is working properly and not just giving the game away. <laughs> you might have a river folk problem if the other two factions at the table are cats and lizards. Sam, why on earth would that be a problem? Three reasons. And I said that number arbitrarily, but I promise I can come up with three reasons. <laughs> okay. <All right? laughs> First thing is they're good Riverfolk customers, like we talked about earlier. Cats want bird cards super bad. Yeah, they have the loyalty card for the Riverfolk. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Lizards want those cards. If there's a dominance card for sale, they're going to buy it. They've got like the mini one on their keychain, you know. <laughs> they're serious about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, these factions suck at policing, okay? So when we're talking about hitting that otter ball, these people aren't going to do it. So they're feeding the otters. They're not helping control the otter ball, Okay. And then a third reason. So you can imagine how this breaks down really easily. (laughs) 
Um, the third reason is they have a lot of meeples to spend. Mm. So the warrior cap is never an issue. So they can spend as much as they feel like. And those meeples are probably coming back to their supply at some point for other reasons, right? Right. See, I knew there would be a third reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can come up with a fourth reason. Oh, yeah? Here's my here's my hot take on the fourth reason. Cats and lizards are area control beasts. Mm. Right? They control clearings really, really well. They They have to. It's part of their game. Right. Gardens automatically rule no matter what. Mm. Cats need to maintain a chain of rules in order to build. So the river folk have easy targets for their trade posts if they have cat and lizard meeples, which they certainly will. As opposed to, like, if they have wooden, woodland alliance meeples, for example, which would be a terrible idea for the alliance, given their warrior cap. The, the, the fact is the warriors for the alliance, they don't control that much territory. So, like... The river folk's going to get diminishing returns out of any funds they have um, in terms of, you know, building trade posts. But cats and lizards, man, they are going to build everywhere. <laughs> it's just like one of those things, like if it's in the draft, if like cats and lizards were already chosen because I, I don't know. I don't know why those were the first two choices. <laughs> but river folk would have to be the next choice, I would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got to think. You got to think. They're on the mailing list, so... <laughs> Um, I, I think I maybe want to lightly add um, Duchy and Eerie to this list mm. as like those are like medium customer factions. Um, Eerie, obviously, because if they need a card for the decree right. or something like they're going to spend the, the funds kind of no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like it's better than turmoiling like their backs against the wall they're going to buy. Or, or even um, what is it? Not, not reinforcements. Mercenaries. If they buy mercenaries, then they can like assure themselves a build a lot of times. Yeah, safety build for sure. If it's if it's risky, and for the duchy, I mean, you got to think that like early in the game, that's a huge advantage for them to get extra cards. Yeah, to have a hand with six cards in the mid game is like insane for the duchy. So, a sense of greed might cause them to start racing, which would obviously prompt the river folk to race as well. So, there's there's definitely some f- specific faction interactions to watch out for, uh, and mostly amongst the red factions with that have more warriors to kind of play with. All right, let's talk about how to check them. And we've been talking about it all episodes, so we don't need to take long on this. There's only really two ways I've found that you can even check these guys. And that is destroy the Otter Ball. We talked about it. Fight their warriors. Mm-hmm. Or just don't buy. <laughs> Sam, no one is no buying. No one's buying, okay? No one's going to buy. <laughs> we all agreed. Okay, great. I, I, I do need one card. I do need one. <laughs> I know what I said last turn, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, we, as we've made a joke, like just don't buy isn't a real strategy. It is a good rule to have. And I would love it if it worked, but like we talked about with the prisoner's dilemma, someone's going to cave. So it's better to just also hit them. How about yes, don't buy think- and hit them? Those are my rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the otters are the most, oh, they're in the game kind of faction, mm-hmm. arguably, right? Because everybody has a chance to both benefit and hinder them in, in their turn. Right. Mm-hmm. Or benefit from and hinder them in their turn. So if everybody has that option, they're going to, like, they can potentially use it regardless of what you do. This is why they're so unpredictable is because not only are they unpredictable, the two other players are unpredictable, too. Absolutely. I, I kind of said this a bit flippantly earlier, but I, I do want to caution. If you have it as your rule to, if you buy from the otters, then immediately hit them. My fear with, 
having that as kind of like a dogma is it kind of corrals your gameplay into a like, do this, then do this. And it could actually serve as a bit of a cover for a greedy buy. Uh, but so imagine this, if you like buy from the river folk and then you spend your turn locating and hitting them rather than dealing with any other threats at the table, you could claim that like, Hey, look, I bought and then I hit them. Like I did my job, but you're kind of isolating yourself or cordoning yourself off from the rest of the table. You're not dealing with the other threats. You're not engaging or entangling with the other factions as much. Uh, instead, you're just hitting the river folk and trying to race. And I don't know. I, I think that's it. I think that ideal doesn't work functionally or like practically in as many games as I would want it to. Um, it's kind of my rule of thumb. Like if you're going to spend, you know, your meeples on funds, like try and check the river folk. But I think it could be used in like a not sincere way to avoid dealing with other problems at the table. I like the strategy, Kyle. Um, I wonder if it could be like further emphasized, like, yeah, use the cover of hitting them in a place that you were already going to be hitting somebody. Right. Exactly. Like you can kind of use that as a cover. Like it, it doesn't always uh, mean that you're meaningfully checking them. Mm-hmm. So something to be aware of for sure. I mean, the best strategy is just don't buy, right? Like, never do it. <laughs> just don't but buy. If you are going to really, really look into your soul, make sure it is actually worth it, though. Because the remember, the two meeples that you give them, you might not ever see those guys again. That's true. <laughs> All right. It's time for special teams. Whistle. Right. Woohoo. Let's start with trade disruption. We touched on it earlier. Uh, that's when you destroy a trade post and any funds that the river folk have in their funds box, they lose half of them rounded up. So let's talk about dividends. It's a thing. And occasionally a savvy opponent will snatch a few points while the table is busy looking elsewhere. Uh, but in more kind of serious competitive tables, it is extremely rare, exceedingly rare to see a player go for dividends strategy. The thing to think about is if the otters are going to go for dividends, they're not going to tell you about it. No. They're just going to leave those meeples in the funds box and just not mention it. So scan. Do a little quick scan. Do they have some suspicious meeples in the funds box? If they do, then it's maybe a good time to look for trade disruption. Remember, the otters need a trade post on the map in order to score dividends. And that makes them vulnerable to trade disruption. So, uh, oh, I do want to mention, we, we talked about this a little bit in our punitive mechanisms episode. Mm-hmm. So for more kind of detailed info about this, definitely check that episode out. When we're talking about threat levels on this, though, it's every two funds is one point. Yes. Every two funds that they score dividends for gets them one. Point. So that's to know that's what you're chasing. Like if you see two funds and you're like, ooh, dividends, then you're going for stopping one point. If you see six right. funds in there. OK, that's that's three. Yeah. That's a coins craft. You should definitely yeah. try and mm-hmm. stop that. The, the way to stop it, basically, is just to take out a trade post. Any old trade post will do. But if they're going for dividends, usually the trade post is going to be pretty well guarded. What's the highest amount of dividends you guys have seen in the game? I don't think I've ever really seen it. I've seen six. Yeah? Three points. Six points? No, three yeah, points. No, three points, yeah. Three oh, points. okay. <laughs> yeah. That is wild. 
people on BGG have have done the calculations, and I'm sure in, in Woodland Warriors as well. But you know, if left alone, like I'm sure the river folk can, in a certain number of turns, like rack up enough dividends to win the game. It but... seems crazy to me, given what they wouldn't do on their turn to do that. Yeah, like what a waste of your action economy, right? Right. Which is why when you hit them with trade disruption, you've really, really messed them up. Because basically they sacrifice last turn for three points this turn. And if you take away their three points this turn, then you really took away two turns from them. Yeah, one of the more brutal, (laughs) kind of like in real life, more brutal uh, punitive mechanisms for sure. Best way to do it. Battle through the warriors, hit the trade posts. That's it. Well, the best way is when the river folk are silly, right? When the river folk on their own turn are have like a warrior and a trade post and they're attacking like a sympathy and you ambush them. Ooh. Because then you yeah, take out one on their own turn and they have a bunch of funds probably on their own turn in the funds box because they haven't spent them all yet. Yeah, that is that is horrible. That is truly that bad. to me seems like the bigger deal because I feel like this f- dividends play is so rare, and of course, also attacking with one otter in a trade post seems rare too. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. This seems like such a better hammer. Yeah, otters won't yeah. do it unless they do a whoopsie daisy. Right. Exactly. And sometimes they're not paying attention. They think it's a free point and they go for it. So keep keep that in mind. Um, trade disruption can have a drastic impact on the otters. Uh, right. Let's move on to no double occupancy. The river folk thrive on monopolies and hate genuine competition, just like real capitalists. (laughs) So they can't have more than one trade post in the same clearing. So sometimes it's valuable to just leave them alone. Yeah. Right. Just leave them alone for most of the game. They can't, uh, drop another trade post on the same clearing. The thinking is that once the otters set up shop in the easy clearings for them, um, specifically the clearings along the river, I'm talking about you want to deny them the opportunity to reestablish trade posts in those same clearings later on. So a victory in my thinking looks like forcing the otters to recruit more, spend funds to move away from the river and then spend even more funds battling and plopping down a trade post. Now that is a pretty inefficient turn for the river folks. Mm -hmm. What they want to do is not move, draw a bunch of cards and craft to win. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So by forcing them to play inefficiently, that is a great way to wear down their advantage and thwart the company. So if sometimes when you see a trade post, maybe leaving it alone is the right move. Yeah, we I, uh, there's that famous like three and a half hour game of Root on Garrix. It was from the first winter tournament, I believe, or maybe a lead uh, it was, up. It was to. actually, uh, yeah, I think it was a um, tournament hype game that's like right just before the tournament kind of warming up for it yeah it's called the uh four hour slug fest and i am in the future going to uh put together a full game analysis i'm about halfway through it now i've been halfway through it for months yeah uh but it is quite long <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah this is actually you can get a little bit fancy with this and take a look at the suits the otters still need access to in order to get a trade post on the map for instance if they have a fox trade post sitting on their little player board they need to rule a fox clearing to put a trade post down. So if you can kind of like clarify this situation in your own mind, you can look at the board and figure out a way to deny rule in those clearings to the factions that have meeples on the river folks board. This is sort of like 4D chess for fighting <laughs> yeah. the river folk. Yeah. But in in this particular game, uh the players figured out a way to collaborate to stop the river folk from getting an easy trade post victory in just this way 
I write down here, this is brain burning stuff, but it can actually win you the extra turn you need to get into contention to win the game. Like all you're trying to do at this point, if you're at this level, uh, high in the alpine air of uh, deep logic and reason, <laughs> is you're you're trying to win an extra turn for yourself. <laughs> the river folk don't just like win the game immediately. Yeah. Um, so keep that in mind. I feel like talking about this on a podcast is not the best way. Like maybe watching some footage of it would help to clarify. But again, that is coming in the future eventually. Right. Last thing in special teams is turn order. The thing you have no control over, but has a giant impact on the game. So if you are right after the otters in turn order, you are in the perfect position to just buy whatever you want. Yeah. You get first crack, (laughs) but Kyle, I thought we weren't buying. No, 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 no one's buying, no one's buying. But if you were to buy, if you were to go right after the otters, just think, no one else has purchased any cards, so you have the best selection. Mm -hmm. No one else has hit any warriors since the otters turned, so you have the best access to their warriors. The otters are probably just set their prices, so you probably have the best chance of, like, swaying them right at the moment at which they're setting their prices. I think if you're going right after the otters you are in the best spot to help drive the bus uh, in terms of the economics of the game. Oh, oh! last thing about going right after them, you don't have the moral pressure of having <laughs> anyone else buy from them, right? There's no other meeple sitting in that payments box. So <laughs> Just your conscience. No yeah. <laughs> However, this does come with a price. Expect the table to pressure you into not buying from the river folk. They are going to try and just use everything they can to to make you see the light and not buy. I feel like the position I'm most scared about when I play against the otters is the position right before them. Yeah. They're going to do the inverse of this. It's like, we're all going to keep the promise until player three gets a shot. And they're like, well. I love being player three. I can tell you, Cassian. <laughs> Even when I yeah, started this... saying this example, I saw that grin <laughs> crawl across your face. <laughs> this goes, this cuts the exact opposite direction. So rather than having... Uh, you know, no scruples about buying from the otters right away since no one else has purchased from them. Instead, if you go right before the otters, you have the ability to spoil any denial strategy that the table is implementing. If everyone is a good little saint and doesn't buy anything at all and it gets around to you, you're the one who can spoil it and there's not a damn thing anyone can do about it. (laughs) Right? You can actually use this turn order placement to negotiate with the table. Right. Though the way I think about this is like saying something to the effect of, oh, if you hit me here, like if you attack me in this clearing, then I'll have no choice but to buy from the river folk mm-hmm. just to get my engine back mm-hmm. on track, just to continue my game. I'm going to have to. So don't hit me there. <laughs> <laughs> also, the, the, the otters are going to be whining the whole time. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. If you're starving. Though. So after two rounds of people not giving into them, there is like going to be a fake sympathy play by player three is like, all right, guys, well. I'm going to, I know we're giving him a little bit, but he hasn't gotten anything this round, so I'm going to make it worth it. <laughs> yes, it is possible to be lulled into the sense that the river folk are actually losing. It's easy to get lulled into thinking that the river folk might actually be losing now and that they need your help. And so you buy from them. Yeah, be, be aware. They're going <laughs> to, they're going to try and get in there for sure. That's great. That's, yeah, I think turn order is huge. Yeah, what about the middle player? We haven't talked about the middle player. What's the deal with the middle player? That, that poor just, like, sad. Yeah, I think worst of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, yeah. because they're going to get looks when they buy early, and they're going to get suspicion 
uh, beforehand. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm always the middle player. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I spend my entire game as the middle player just just pleading with the people to my right and left to <laughs> buy from the river boat. I mean, there is a whole discussion. Like, th- this is one of the hardest metas to deal with is the existence yeah. of the otters, I yeah. feel. Uh, like, as we said at the beginning, this is the, one of the most interactive factions in the game because you literally have rulings that you can just interact with them on your turn. You can affect their board state. You can affect uh, their personal board, right? It becomes a delicate balance of getting people to trust you at the table and your assessment of things. Yeah. While still uh, keeping that trust as long as you can, even if you do betray the agreement, because sometimes that can work out if you justify it well, as Kyle's given some great opportunities for us to. An advantage is an advantage. And if it gets you closer to winning the game, then it was the right move, right? But it also could be the mistake that loses you the game to the Riverfolk Company. And it's all about uh, risk assessment in, in the terms of the uh, Riverfolk Company. Risk assessment is everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you are going to dance with the devil, <laughs> you better bring some dancing shoes. Yeah. I think that will wrap it up for the <laughs> versus guide against the otters. You better bring your devil dancing shoes to Lady bring Capitalism. I don't know how to make it water themed, but you know, you get what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I think everybody's got it. And I think everybody agrees that we are not going to buy at all. Go, everyone Absolutely who's listening not. to this podcast, we're not buying from the River Folk anymore. Yeah, do not Never buy again. from the River Folk. Yeah. Boycott. It is July 31st or whenever this podcast comes out. So <laughs> it is now time to stop buying from the River Folk. Never again. Never again. <laughs> All right, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast called Woodland War Machine. Rate it on your podcast app of choice. And please join our Patreon. Uh, that is the Good Time Society Patreon. Join the Discord where we have our own channel, the Woodland War Machine channel. Uh, always games going on there. We want to hear from you. And I want to give a big shout out to all of the people that helped me out with this episode. I didn't write down names. You know who you are. Fugless, Garrick, Nev, A.A. Ron. It's the usual crew that was helping out today. Uh, I appreciate you all uh, so much. And if you have any ideas about the show, ideas for episodes, or questions for our Patreon-exclusive content called Root Purdy, please go ahead and send me a private message on Discord. Yes, also send any uh, specific interactions with the Lost City. Uh, over to Sam, that is Murder She Root, or me, Waterman121. I'm always open to hearing uh, fun new interactions that we haven't thought of yet. I'm going to keep pumping this, you guys. I think it should be a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm in agreement. There's there's so much to talk about. It's like, it affects everything. It affects so much. It's every suit. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. And good luck to everyone in the winter tournament. Uh, so excited to keep following the action over on Garrick's Twitch stream. That is Garrick Samples Games over on Twitch. Well, we're going to head off to play Ruperty now, but for those of you that aren't Patreon members and can't join us, we'll see you next week for another episode. But in the meantime, just remember when you're in public to randomly shout, Roop, 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 Roop.